2 Samuel 13, verses 21 and 22, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And the scripture says, when King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this moment, O oh Lord God. Thank you for this privilege to share the word this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, O oh Lord, to receive this word, to be transformed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love the story of David. I love the story of David. And it all started for me when I was 16 years old. I was sitting in church one Sunday, and I was a little disengaged from the sermon that day. I hope that you won't be disengaged from the sermon today. And so I opened up the Bible, and I began to read 1 Samuel, and then 2 Samuel, because it was a long sermon. And I couldn't believe my eyes. It was an amazing story. The story had rival wives. It had a priest with wicked sons. It had a handsome new king. An epic battle between a giant and an unlikely hero who would be king. The descent into insecurity and madness of the first king. It had a hero on the run. And then that same hero's ultimate vindication. It had betrayal, had conspiracy, had adultery, had murder, had incest, and then more murder. It was amazing. It was like a soap opera and the Godfather all rolled into one. <laughs> and I fell in love with the scriptures. It was an amazing story. And today we're going to pick up the story uh, right where we left off. Now, we're in the Fearless series, exploring the life of David. Pastor Steve shared in a message two weeks ago titled An Eternal Perspective, where he taught about how we should react when God says no. Because indeed, God has three answers whenever we bring a petition. The answers are yes, no, and wait. However, we tend to think that if the answer isn't yes, that the default is going to be wait, but sometimes... The answer is no. It was a wonderful message. If you missed it, I highly recommend that you go on the website or go on the app and check it out. The message spoke about a time where David didn't behave like the hero we all like to remember. David made some choices which amounted to betrayal, adultery, conspiracy, and murder. And we're going to pick the story up right where we left off two weeks ago with a sermon titled, Actions Speak Louder Than Words. If you recall, David had stayed home instead of going off to war. And from the palace rooftop, he noticed a woman who was bathing, and he was attracted to her. And he sent for her. And though she was a married woman, he slept with her. And then upon realizing that she was pregnant, David conspired to have her husband murdered on the battlefield. Then he took her as his wife in order to make it appear like everything was legit. 
But God, who sees it all, sent the prophet to confront David and tell him that the child would, in fact, die. And David prayed and David fasted, but God's judgment was final. And so after the child died, David picked himself up, cleaned himself up, filled himself up, and moved on. And he and Bathsheba would have another child, another son, and they would name him Solomon. How many of us know that oftentimes consequences pursue us? How many of us realize that our actions don't only affect us, our actions affect those around us, especially those closest to us, because actions speak louder than words. That's why the old expression, do as I say, not as I do, never works. Actions speak louder than words. And David's fall from grace did not only affect Bathsheba's firstborn, it would also affect David's firstborn son, Amnon, as well as some of David's other children, Tamar and Absalom. Because sometime after the birth of Solomon, David's oldest son, Amnon, developed an illness. It's an illness, an ailment that many of us are familiar with. Amnon became lovesick. You remember what it's like to be lovesick? All you're thinking about is that person, and you can't eat, and you can't sleep, and you can't concentrate. You're just so lovesick. And that's how Amnon was feeling, and he was, you know, he took out his notebook, and he was writing down, Mr. and Mrs. Amnon Davidson. You know, because he was David's son, you know? <laughs> but the problem is that Amnon became lovesick towards his half-sister, Tamar, who was the full sister of Absalom. Now, I don't know which half he fell in love with, but this is the part that sounds like a soap opera. <laughs> and though Tamar was Amnon's half-sister... David's previous actions had taught his son Amnon that if he wanted a woman, it didn't matter who she was, he could simply take her. And I wonder, what are our actions teaching our children? Because when David had inquired about Bathsheba, he found out that she was the wife of one of his mighty men. And she was also the daughter of another of his mighty men. Now, these mighty men, these were the men who followed David when he was being hunted by King Saul. They followed David through thick and thin. They followed David. They had pledged their lives to David. These are the men who would fight for him despite whatever odds they faced. So of all the women David could have been attracted to, this woman should have immediately been understood to be off limits. But that didn't stop David. And so a minor detail, like Tamar being Amnon's half-sister, 
wasn't going to stop Amnon. He had seen his father take what he wanted, and he felt entitled to do the same because actions speak louder than words. So Amnon conspired to be alone with Tamar. Now remember, she was a princess. She's the daughter of a king. So everywhere that she went, there was an escort. There were eunuchs. She was always surrounded by people. So Amnon had to conspire. Now listen to me very closely. If you find yourself conspiring to do something, if you find yourself conspiring to get a thing, it's a good sign that you should stop. Amnon, he came up with an, with an idea. He decided to play sick. Now, he was the king's firstborn, so it was a big deal if the king's firstborn son got sick. And so Amnon locked himself in his house and, and said that he was bedridden and said that he was too sick to come out and too sick to eat. And ultimately, King David came to visit him. and He said, hey, what's going on? I'm not, I'm just sick. I just can't eat a thing. And his father, King David, was like, no, man, you got to eat. We have some arroz con gandules, some pernis, some pateles. <laughs> King David was like, pide que hay, no hay problema. <laughs> and Amnon was like, you know what? Maybe if Tamar comes over and cooks a little something for me, maybe I, I can eat that. So they send Tamar over, and she comes over, obviously escorted by her servants and everything, and she comes over, and, and she makes, you know, she makes some empanadas. <laughs> and Amnon decides that he's going to lay it on thick and play really sick, and he's in his bedroom, and he's screaming, I'm so sick, everybody get out, everybody leave, everybody clear this place, everybody out, except for Tamar. And because he was the firstborn of the king, everybody had to obey his command. And Tamar was left alone with him. And he called for her to come into his bedroom because he was so ill. He was so sick. I can't come out. I need you to bring it to me. Please bring it to me. Come feed me. And so she brought the food into the bedroom. But as soon as she came near him, he grabbed her and made his intentions known. And Tamar resisted. She begged him to stop. Begged him to stop. She even went so far as to suggest to Amnon, hey, listen, why don't you just ask the king, tell the king to give me to you as a bride, but don't do this thing. But he wouldn't relent. Amnon raped his sister Tamar that day. And once he was done, he was disgusted and sent her away. That's a pattern that a lot of men follow. That's a different sermon. Now Tamar begins to beg him again. This time she's saying, please don't send me away. If you send me away, it's worse than what you've done to me already. But he was so cruel, so cruel, that he called in a servant 
and told the servant, throw this woman out. Take this woman away from me. Now here was Tamar, broken. She had her innocence, her virginity stolen from her. She puts ashes on her head and she rips her garment and she wails, she cries unconsolably. And her brother Absalom finds her and he takes her to his house. And there she would spend the rest of her days as a desolate woman. Now I know what you're thinking. This sounds just like the plot to just about every Lifetime movie ever. But this, this actually happened. And when King David found out he was very angry. The scriptures say he was very angry. But he did nothing. King David did absolutely nothing. And Absalom held this in his heart. The betrayal and rape of his baby sister. And the pathetic inaction of his father. Actions speak louder than words. But Absalom had also learned a lesson from King David's actions. Absalom learned that when a man gets in your way, no matter who that man is, you can conspire to have him murdered. Because when David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he called for her husband, Uriah, to come back from battle, expecting that Uriah would naturally sleep with his wife and that the child would then be assumed to be Uriah's. But when Uriah refused to sleep with his wife because his compatriots were still on the battlefield, David decided that the best way the only way to deal with the situation was to design a ruse in order to get Uriah killed on the battlefield. David's actions taught his son Absalom how to conspire and murder a man. Taught him step by step how to conspire to murder a man. Even though that man had dedicated his life to protecting David. And even though in Absalom's case that man was his brother. And again, I wonder, what are our actions teaching our children? Because actions speak louder than words. Absalom followed his father's example. For two years, he let anger fester as he plotted to kill his brother Amnon. And when the time came, Absalom executed an elaborate ruse to coordinate Amnon's murder. And this is the part that sounds like the Godfather. Absalom went over to Amnon, gave him a, piss, uh, a kiss and said, it was you, Fredo. <laughs> Actions speak louder than words. Amnon's murder would lead to Absalom's exile. And then he would return in the future with a plot to take the kingdom from his father, David. 
And that plot would also cost Absalom his life. Actions speak louder than words. David's actions ultimately cost him the lives of three sons and the life of a daughter who would live out the rest of her days as if she were dead. How many of us know that a God-fearing person, a person called and ordained, a person after the heart of God, that person can still make choices and mistakes that have monumental impact and ramifications. A person can go from being fearless to being thoughtless, clueless, and useless in a matter of seconds. None of us is perfect. None of us. You know, I, I wish that I could tell you that I've never taught my children the wrong things with my actions, but that would be a lie. Sometimes, I think too many times, I taught my children that work was more important than family. Too many times, I taught my children that ministry was more important than family, and it's something that I do regret. Last week, something interesting happened. I was straightening up my bedroom, and I found a box. My wife had a box, and it was falling apart. And so I went and I got another box so that I can transfer the contents of the first box into the second box. And what she had in that little box was 20 years worth of photographs. 20 years worth of pictures. And I sat down and I spent hours looking at these pictures. Pictures of my children when they were small. My children are grown now. This year my children are 22, 20, and 17. Yeah, we had babies in preschool. <laughs> but I looked at these pictures and I looked at myself in these pictures and in so many pictures I wasn't smiling. And I look at these pictures now, and I wonder, what could I have been thinking? What could have been going through my mind that I missed out on enjoying every second of that moment? Because you don't get those times back. And so sometimes I confess that I taught my children that work was more important that ministry was more important. And I do regret it. Because the truth is that if every single person here today and everyone watching via live stream goes to heaven because of me, but my children don't, I'm still a failure. Now, I recognize that ultimately my children have to choose Jesus for themselves. And I have taught them that they don't get a free pass into heaven because daddy's a pastor. But if I fail to prioritize so much that my children resent God, well, that's on me. And so I've learned over the course of my years that knowing what not to do in a situation is at least as important as knowing what to do. And this is clearly a case of what not to do. You know, I love that the Bible is this real. I love that the Bible is so real. I love that the Bible gives me a hero who stands defiantly before a giant and still wrestles with real-life issues like lust and failed parenthood. 
And perhaps David was, perhaps because David was never regarded by his own father, Jesse, maybe that's why David didn't initially give too much thought or effort to fatherhood. Maybe something happened in your own life. Maybe something with your parents that caused you to parent in a certain way. But you know, you don't have to keep repeating the same mistakes over and over. Maybe you haven't been the world's greatest mom or or dad, but who is? I am. I have a plaque in my office that says it. Um, But even if you haven't, be real. Recognize it. Own it. And change. See, it's not too late to bring this also to the foot of the cross. It's not too late to come to the foot of the cross and to confess, Oh God, forgive me. Oh God, forgive me. For I have been a poor steward of the greatest resource, of the greatest treasure that you have given me, my children. And God is merciful to forgive and graceful to help you to move forward and to change. And you know, that's what we see that David did later in life. As David got older, we see a difference. We see him later in life pouring into Solomon. We see him later in life giving Solomon godly guidance and wisdom that he had never given to Absalom, that he had never given to Ammon. And maybe if he had, things would have been different. But later in life, David changes and he begins to pour into Solomon. You know, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David is talking to Solomon. He says, and Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. And if you seek him, you'll find him. But if you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. Wisdom. David couldn't back and change things with Amnon and with Absalom. But he still had an obligation to try to be a good father and to try to be a good, a good king. You can't go back and change what you've done. You can't go back and change the past. I wish we could, but we can't. But we still have an obligation. If we're still breathing, it's because God's not done yet. And we still have an opportunity to get it right. You know, we fight this battle every day. It's one day at a time. And some days our only prayer can be, God, help me to do this much better than I did yesterday. David still had an obligation to try to be a good father, to try to be a good king. And that would require him investing the time to prepare Solomon for the future. And we get to reap benefits from that time because Solomon went on to receive wisdom from the Lord, wisdom that we can see in the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, in the book of Song of Solomon, and even in the Psalms. You know, I want to share a Psalm with you right now. Psalm 127, I enjoy it. Psalm 127 reads like this, and I know you've heard it before. It says, unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard. 
from early in the morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Now, this psalm is traditionally attributed to Solomon, at least in the Christian Bible it is. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's not. You see, a thousand years ago, there was a rabbi, he was a genius, and he wrote a commentary to the Hebrew Bible. He was Rabbi Abraham Abin Ezra, and his commentary, according to IsraelBible.com, is included in all of the most common editions of the Hebrew Bible that contain rabbinic commentary. And Rabbi Abraham Abin Ezra, he wrote that that psalm was not a psalm of Solomon, but rather a psalm for Solomon, written by David when God told David that Solomon would be the one to build the temple. And in that light, it makes sense that the labor labors in vain. It places Psalm 127 in an extraordinary light. But I want to draw your attention this morning specifically to verse 4. Verse 4 says, children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. And I believe that there are some significant parenting implications contained in this simple verse. We've considered how David failed to parent his children. Now let's consider this concept that was written or directly influenced by David. Children are like arrows in a warrior's hand. Children are like arrows in a warrior's hand. Now, to all the parents in the room, I want you to understand this illustration because I really want to teach you something this morning. And although you might be able to identify yourself as the arrow or you might want to identify yourself as the bow, and we'll get to those things later, but if you are a parent, you need to understand that God has declared that in this illustration that you are the warrior. God has called you and commissioned you and set you apart for this spiritual warfare in your own home. And the battle begins with you. And so before we get to the bow and before we get to the arrows, let's talk a little bit about number one, the warrior. It's the warrior's responsibility to get to the optimal location on the battlefield. The warrior should be obsessed with moving forward. The warrior should do everything in his or her power to get to the point on the battlefield where they can identify a target and begin to aim. Now, friends, notice this dynamic at work. The warrior brings the arrows with him. The warrior does not determine that the arrow should do anything other than remain inside the quiver and come along for the ride. The warrior never says, well, I worked hard to get to where I am, so the arrow should work just as hard to get here before I decide to shoot. Now, that would be ridiculous. Yet some parents insist on making their children fight battles that the parents have already won. 
Well, I had to work hard to get to, to where I am. Nobody helped me, so then why should it be any different from my kids? Well, that's just foolishness. And what's more, it's unbiblical. Because Jesus came down from heaven and took the punishment for you and for me. We are lost in our sin, lost in our sin. And there's nothing we can ever do to deserve the grace of God. So Jesus, who was blameless, was whipped and beaten. He was tortured and made to carry a cross that was never his to bear. And then he was nailed, his hands and his feet, to that cross. Immaculate blood flowed from his body as he took our punishment and declared, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And though Jesus says that we ought to take up our cross and follow him, listen to me, friends, he never, ever, ever demands that we be nailed to it. We benefit from his sacrifice. Our children should benefit from ours. A warrior is supposed to take risks and make sacrifices for the purpose of gaining ground so that the arrow will not have to cover it. But the warrior is not empty-handed. He carries with him, number two, the bow. He carries a bow. And that bow represents all of your experiences and all of your resources. And the two combine to give you, the warrior, a unique process for shooting your arrows. Now, you might wish you had a different bow. I think that we all do at one point or another. But the bow that you have is the bow that God Almighty has determined you need for your mission. Don't be jealous of my bow. Remember, my bow is comprised of experiences and resources. You don't know the experiences that brought me this bow. And trust me, you might not like them. Also, don't be distracted by another warrior's bow. You know, the enemy would love nothing more than to create dissension within our ranks to keep our focus off of our divine mission. Stay focused. And that brings us to number three, the arrow. The arrows are our children. The arrows are our children. Now, some of you sitting in here or sitting in the overflow or watching via live stream are arrows. Some of you are arrows. And to the arrows, I will give you this reminder. You don't get to choose your warrior, nor the bow that you are shot from. Wouldn't it be great, though? If right before you're born, God says, all right, here's your list, you can choose, I'd be like, uh, Warren Buffett. All of us, all of us are arrows, or we have been arrows, those of us who are now warriors. 
The arrow doesn't get to choose the warrior nor the bow. Your responsibility is an arrow. Listen to me carefully. Your responsibility is to accept the sacrifices of the warrior. And when the time comes, to fly straight and true. Now, warriors, listen to me. Warriors, listen to me. The arrows don't shoot themselves no matter what they try to tell you. Arrows do not get to shoot themselves. There is most certainly and most definitely a process. The warrior has to determine whether an arrow is ready to be shot. And despite what you see in the movies and on TV, the arrows are usually shot one at a time. It's the warrior's responsibility to inspect that arrow and make sure that it's ready to hit that target. Now consider this. Since we are God's children, we're God's arrows. And the same principles apply. We might think that we're prepared to be launched into our next season. But it is God who determines when the time is right. And when the time is right, Our job as God's arrows is to fly straight and true. Now, once a warrior determines that the arrow is ready, it's brought to the bow, and then something uncomfortable happens. Now, the arrow has been prepared. It's the moment of truth. The arrow is perfectly designed to soar forward. But before that arrow can soar forward, it must be pulled back. That's right. The arrow is brought to the bow and it's being aimed. But until the moment that the warrior releases the arrow, the arrow is pulled backwards. Now listen, this is very important, very important to know. There is an element of restraint that must accompany every successful shot. There is an element of restraint that must accompany every successful shot. Yes, your children should experience some restraint for their own good. When my oldest son was younger, he would say, but dad, how come all of my friends get to hang out all night, but I have a curfew? And then I tell them, because they're not my kid. <laughs> that's why. That, that, that's the answer. They're not my kid. Now, someone here today needs to understand this principle. Because you are growing impatient, waiting for the moment where God will finally release you. You're in a spiritual moment and you've grown anxious and frustrated. And right now you feel like you're actually being pulled back. And it's uncomfortable. And it's frustrating. And it's exhausting. And maybe it's even a little embarrassing. But I want to encourage you today. Don't give up and don't give in. God is preparing to launch you. God has a target in his sights, and he's pulling you back and getting you ready. 
but you need to understand the dynamics of shooting an arrow. The worship team can start making their way back. See, the warrior does not shoot an arrow arbitrarily. The warrior is on the battlefield and considers various targets. And once a target has been selected, the warrior must make certain adjustments to affect that target properly. But there are forces at work against the arrow. See, in the natural, there are forces at work against the arrow. There's the force of gravity. So no matter how strong a warrior is or how straight an arrow is, eventually the force of gravity will bring that arrow to the ground. And did you know that there are also supernatural forces at work against your children? Did you know that we need to understand that our children are being overwhelmed and bombarded with images and ideas which have been sent to them by the enemy to try to steal our children's earthly and eternal destiny? And there's a principle at work here. And I want you to understand this. I want you to visualize this with me. Because if you want your arrow to travel further, you have to aim it a little bit higher. C.S. Lewis once said, aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So parents, warriors, part of the principle here is that you should aim your children, your arrows toward heaven. Aim them high, knowing that they will soar and reach a destination which is beyond you. That's the purpose of an arrow to reach a target or a destination which is beyond the warrior. And notice that the warrior does not grow resentful of the arrow, but rejoices when the arrow hits its mark. Too many people are like, well, I didn't go to college, so why does my kid have to go to college? Or I've always lived in this neighborhood. I grew up in this neighborhood. If it's good enough for me, why isn't it good enough for my kid? Rejoice when your kid surpasses you. Rejoice when your kid goes further than you were ever able to go. Now keep in mind that if the warrior wants that arrow to do more than just reach the target, the warrior has to prepare the arrow accordingly. If the warrior wants the target to catch fire, the arrow must be prepared. The arrow must be lit on fire before it's released because arrows don't light themselves. So if we want to prepare our children for a future, for a specific destiny, we need to do all that we can to prepare them before we release them. You know, David commanded Solomon, learn to know the God of your ancestors and if you seek him, you will find him. We need to do all that we can to set our children on fire for the Lord now before we release them. And then we need to trust God that once we do release them, they will fly straight and true. Children are like arrows in a warrior's hand. So much wisdom that we can find from here. So much wisdom we find in this verse. So many different actions that we can take to affect our children positively because actions speak louder than words. 
we can learn so many things from the life of David. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was a man with flaws. He was a man who stood before giants. And he was a man who was crushed by his failures as a father. In the, man, in the end, he was a man who prepared a son to be king. But you know, I don't know if David ever made any attempts to comfort his daughter Tamar. I don't know if he ever tried to make it right. The Bible doesn't say. But you and I don't have to repeat the mistakes that David made. You and I don't have to repeat the mistakes our parents made. You and I don't have to repeat the mistakes that we made. We can choose to do better for ourselves and choose to be better for our children. Maybe you think that you've already damaged your child beyond repair. But if you're hearing these words today, it's because God wants to mend that which you've broken. It's not too late to change. It's not too late to be better. It's not too late to bring it to the cross. Now, this word might be difficult to hear for some, for some of you, especially if you've been hurt by your parents. But I want to declare to you today that God wants you to forgive. God doesn't want you to carry that burden of bitterness for the rest of your life. He came so that you might have life and life in abundance. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. He sent Jesus to die for us so that we can have an eternity in heaven with him. So right now, with every head bowed, I'd like to ask you a question. If eternity were to begin today, would you be spending it in heaven with Jesus? If you're not sure, then I want to invite you to come forward and speak to one of our altar counselors, and I'll ask our altar counselors to take their place. And if you're carrying the burden of a broken relationship with your parent, or if you're carrying the burden of a broken relationship with your child, we'd like to pray with you also this morning. You can bring this burden to the cross and exchange it for the peace that surpasses all understanding. If you're struggling within the season that you're in, maybe you're feeling like you're being pulled back when you expected to be released. I want to encourage you to trust God through the process. I want to encourage you that God is still at work. I want to encourage you that God is still on the throne. I want to encourage you that God is not done yet. And if you need prayer for strength and for comfort, we want to pray for you as well. Let's all pray together right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you have loved us so much and you Lord, have a purpose, a plan, and a destiny for us and for our children. Holy Spirit, help us to be good stewards of that great treasure, that great resource which you have given us, our children. Father, that in everything that we do, we would glorify you, O Lord God. Restore relationships in this house today, O Lord God, I pray. 
Heal the wounded, O Lord God. Heal the brokenhearted, O Lord. And be glorified in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name.